for very high consequence decisions, the ones that the board and, and some of the CEO and executive team sometimes would make. The number one predictor of being able to make a fast, high quality decision that leads to better performance is the quality of the debate that goes into that. And one of the important hallmarks of a really high quality debate is the diversity of perspectives that are brought to bear. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we'll discuss decision-making by boards of directors as part of our continuing series on important issues facing boards and their organizations. Leading today's discussion is Fritjof Lund, a senior partner in our Oslo office and global leader of our board services work. He'll be speaking with three experts who have firsthand experience making high-consequence decisions in strategy and boardrooms. Suzanne Nimix is a director on the boards of a number of public companies, including ArcelorMittal and Owens Corning. She's also a former senior partner at McKinsey. Aaron DeSmet is a senior partner in our New Jersey office, and Lee Weiss is a senior expert in our Boston office. Fritjof, let me hand things over to you. Today, we will explore what makes some board of directors effective decision makers and others not, uh, and what are some of the techniques that boards can use to ensure that they make the best possible decisions. Um, thanks a lot, Suzanne, Lee, and Aaron for uh, joining us today. And maybe to start us off, uh, let's explore a bit what's special about decision making in the boardroom. We know, of course, that board of directors uh, of any company is constantly making decisions. And in many ways, the quality of the decisions uh, that these boards make is the measure of their success. Now, Suzanne, you have experience from multiple boards. Could you tell us a bit about what are some of the decision-making processes on the boards where you have been involved? Sure, Fritoff. You know, I think as I think about the kinds of decisions that boards make, they center around four different categories. So there are HR-related decisions, and that's around CEO succession, board succession, executive compensation. Then there are a number of financial-related decisions, and they're around capital allocation and balance sheet management and dividend policy. Then there are strategy and M&A-related decisions, and they're around the purchase and sale of assets or businesses. And then finally, there are a number of governance-oriented decisions around structure, processes, and decision rules. The processes are a little bit different because boards of directors don't necessarily have their own ability to do analysis. So they rely on management teams to present all of the analyses so that they can make informed decisions. And then the processes of decision-making is around asking challenging questions, playing devil's advocate, helping to come up with alternatives. And in that way, they can advise management and make decisions. And, and, uh, what do you see as some of the key challenges and uh, maybe the pitfalls that boards can experience when they do make decisions? Well, I think if uh, relying entirely on the surface of presentations that management pulls together without probing and asking for additional information and deeper questions. The one other pitfall is groupthink, having everyone 
have a similar point of view. So it's important to have diversity of thought in the boardroom so that people can come from different perspectives and some people can challenge and be devil's advocates. And I think the third one is making decisions too quickly without enough information. Aaron, Suzanne mentioned some of the uh, the different elements of that, but which are specific for Board, board of director level decisions in your, in your view? I think a lot of the issues uh, crop up outside the board. In the board, they're just more specific and acute. So if you have a groupthink problem in the board, for example, like uh, Suzanne described, the groupthink problem in the board has nobody above the board to keep it in check or to ask the question, are, do we, are we all too much on the same page and not having enough diverse points of view and opinion? Similarly, if the board gets into a habit of rubber stamping the decisions that are brought to it, uh, again, because they don't directly have access to the data and to the analysis, it's being presented to them by management, there's no other governing mechanism that typically comes into play to correct it until something potentially catastrophic happens that shows you that you're not uh, checking and balancing the management team's decision-making. I think that's a good point, Aaron. One way that boards do get around that is to bring different perspectives into the boardroom besides management. So various analysts who study the industry and legal advice, a variety of other perspectives to make sure that there's a broad set of perspectives, not just management's perspective at the table. What's really clear from the research, in fact, Suzanne, is exactly this point. Uh, as, As we've looked at this issue systematically, for very high consequence decisions, the ones that the board and, and some of the CEO and executive team sometimes would make. The number one predictor of being able to make a fast, high quality decision that leads to better performance is the quality of the debate that goes into that. And one of the important hallmarks of a really high quality debate is the diversity of perspectives that are brought to bear. And one of the things that we see with uh, boards and management teams that are best able to manage high degrees of uncertainty and risks is the ability to bring in experts who you wouldn't normally think you would have in a particular organization. You wouldn't necessarily in a bank bring in or have an expert on the board of somebody who who deals with natural disasters. But as, as financial institutions and banks deal more with mortgages on properties that could be underwater, that may be an important consideration. You know, it's interesting. There's some boards are very good at certain types of decisions and not so good at others. So just to give an example, back to Suzanne's point on the the types of decisions boards make, some are very good at their fiduciary responsibilities and good at the finances, often because that's who populates the board. It's standard practice to bring in both internal and external auditors, but they might not do the same on strategic matters, for example. And and again, it's about inviting in those diverse perspectives, creating some healthy dialogue and debate. And some management teams don't always welcome healthy dialogue and debate. When they do, I think it's helpful to them to get the most out of their board in shaping their decisions and making them better. But if they look to the board to just approve and review and say, yes, great, go do it, um, they're missing an opportunity. And boards can fall into that very trap of asking a few tough questions 
and then effectively rubber stamping the decision that management asks for every time. I guess one observation we have from discussing with chairs and, and boards uh, and management, it seems to be an increasing engagement by the board on a number of decisions. Is that also your experience? The board is getting more involved in, in the key decisions? I think it is best practice for the board to be involved in key decisions. I think that's the expectation of shareholders. I do think historically many boards were governed with rubber stamps, with infrequent meetings, and I think the expectation of shareholders have have increased dramatically. So there's no doubt that boards are much more attuned and working much harder to make sure that their involvement in these decisions are very active. If decision-making is already challenging uh, under normal circumstances, of course, during the pandemic, it, it's been on the extreme uh, side with um, very frequent decisions and a lot more uncertainty. Aaron, how do you see some uh, of the organizations that you advise uh, have been reacting to this change in pace? Well, the, the first thing you notice is they are meeting more often. They're just having to meet more often because more decisions are coming up with more uncertainties and higher stakes. We saw this happening incrementally even pre-COVID. There was a faster pace of change, more turbulent and uncertain business environments. But with COVID, we've seen that, I think, really turbocharged. I've seen senior teams managing a lot more frequently. And Suzanne, I'd be interested from your perspective. I imagine being on boards, you and the boards you're on are meeting more often during COVID. Uh, There's no question about that, Aaron. Two of the boards I'm on are in the energy industry. And as you can imagine, the energy industry was hit doubly with COVID. You know, it was the perfect storm of a decrease in demand due to COVID, but also the Russian-Saudi detente, which put further pressure on oil prices. And so it just completely wiped out any planning of any type. And so that was in all-out crisis mode from, from March 1 till now even. Um, and so those boards are meeting weekly. In other industries, it's been a little less frequent. But, but board engagement has never been higher uh, in, this, in this time of COVID. Which means it's also important to engage on the right decision at the right time in the right way, because you can't just engage equally on every decision. In fact, this is one of the learnings we've had broadly in decision-making is you have to segment the decisions and not treat them the same. And for boards, there might be requirements in the bylaws that says the management team has to notify you at, as a board when these things happen. But that doesn't mean you have to be involved or engaged in them. If you're satisfied that management's taking care of the issues, you can spend more time on the decisions where you do need to engage. There was one board uh, that I worked with where they just couldn't get through any agenda. They were trying to spend time on everything. This was a large healthcare system. The bylaws would say, well, if there's a patient death where human error might have been involved, or if there's a lawsuit, you have to notify the board. But the board would try to engage on all of it. And they would be engaging on things that at the end, after 45 minutes of discussion, didn't change anything, didn't result in any decision other than the management team continuing to do what they were going to do anyway. And then other decisions that probably would have been better suited to have two or three hours of real debate on real questions, real strategic choices that needed to be made, where the answer wasn't obvious and management did need guidance. 
didn't have time, didn't have airtime. Sometimes they didn't even make it to those items. That's where committee structures become very, very important. And the uh, clarity around what has to get done and decided within committees and what gets done and decided and brought to the full board. And there needs to be real discipline in how committees operate and work because that's that's where you can really get a lot of the most important work done. I was just curious, Suzanne, you mentioned that you had in, in one of your boards, you had weekly board meetings. What type of decisions did you make and what were also some of the implications for let's say, the delineation between the board's role and the management role in decision-making? Yeah, it was clearly a a situation of the risk of financial distress and solvency, and therefore it was critical for the board to be involved in um, being very closely attuned to the financial implications and, and situation. And the board really focused on those issues exclusively. So pre-COVID, I think Aaron and Lee, you had done quite a a bit of research around decision-making in general uh, and what constitutes efficient decision-making. What were some of the learnings there? Maybe Lee, you want to take us through some of the key findings? Sure. I mean, I think first we were were interested in the question of um, what are organizations that are making both fast and good decisions doing differently? Because we typically hear that we can make a fast decision uh, and maybe not consider all the important information. Suzanne mentioned early on a pitfall of boards making decisions without all of the right information. Um, and or they say we can make uh a high quality decision, which means we might have all the information and all the people involved, but we uh, won't necessarily make it quickly. Uh, and we wanted to know what those organizations were doing differently that were able to make both fast and good decisions and whether that had a uh, performance implication. Um, it clearly had a performance implication because the research showed that organizations that make both fast and good decisions and drive commitment to those decisions outperform their peers uh, by two times. On the findings, I think perhaps the ones that are that are most germane for boards in particular are around the, uh, the, the big bet, the really high consequence decisions that perhaps are not made uh, super frequently. And there, uh, I think some of the most interesting insights are around um, we've talked about, number one, the diversity of bringing diverse perspectives. Uh, how do you both bring diverse perspectives and move quickly? The second insight there is that you need to distinguish who has a vote and who has a voice. And you can bring in lots of diversity with voices as long as you don't have the assumption that anybody who is necessarily sitting around the table also has a vote. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Lee. I think the the quick decisions and the agile decisions are ones, frankly, the management team can make, and they're normally the day-to-day decisions. And and so uh, the big bet decisions are the ones that shouldn't be made quickly. And I think we need to distinguish between the two. The big bet decisions are the ones that come to the board. Normally, they're made over a series of meetings and discussions. And most savvy CEOs know that they never want to surprise their board with a need to make a very quick decision around a big bet. 
think there are a number of best practices that can help with that also, you know, both in terms of what's done ahead of the meeting, ahead of a board meeting and, and, and during a, a board meeting, I think perhaps, um, you know, sometimes we see a, a pre-syndication or a roadshow of a, a decision that needs to get made. And that always undermines debate and simultaneous debate among, you know, diverse people with diverse perspectives. Um, and, and that's not especially helpful. I think considering multiple options is is useful. Maybe assigning a devil's advocate and exploring assumptions. And then one of the things that we saw in the research, uh, Suzanne interested in your day-to-day experience with this, um, but where there's trust among the, the board and the decision makers and a degree of, of, of psychological safety where, where it feels uh, safe and comfortable to bring up something that's not working well or a mistake. Uh, those tend to be higher functioning uh, boards. That last point, Lee, is very important. Trust is critical. You cannot be a high functioning board unless there's trust amongst all of the members. And where the management team knows that they can feel comfortable and safe to to raise bad news or to to you know, admit to some things that are not working as well, and the, know that they're going to get the board support, and um, so that that that's absolutely critical. There's a few things that you can extract from from some of the best practices. If you look at setting up an effective, even just how you manage the agenda and how you spend time and what you engage on and with whom, a board agenda would typically have a set of things like things we just need to inform the board about. And we, we need to give them a chance to ask questions if they have them. And the trick is don't spend a lot of time on those things. And these are things where you say, well, let's box that in and we can spend more time in special sessions if we need to uh, in, in separate meetings or, or offline. Um, a second uh, type of agenda item is where you need approval, but you don't need debate. It's fairly perfunctory. So the bylaws, the regulations, how we're set up, governance, requires us to get approval, often uh, to create more time for the other things, we would use a consent agenda. It would be sent out in pre-read, all the information would be there, and the chair of the board would just ask, does anybody disagree? And, And it's intentionally a rubber stamp that frees up more time for the next two things. One is getting discussion and guidance. We're not making a big decision but like Suzanne said, boards do not like to be surprised with a big decision. By the time you're bringing them a really big high stakes decision, you should have already had several conversations with them. So these discussions and guidance and shaping where we're headed and what we're looking at and what options we're considering need more time. And then finally, the actual making of the decision, especially one of the things we see when making a, a good decision is bring multiple options bring multiple voices, and then make a call. And often we see mistakes on, on, on all three of those fronts. We didn't bring in multiple options. We brought in one option and assumed that the, the, the only other option was the status quo, when actually there were lots of options on the table. And while we might have decided to do something better than doing nothing, it might have been very suboptimal compared to other options on the table. And the only way to know that is to get some options out there and let the board see what the other alternatives are. Erin, the other thing I would add to that is the ability to make sure there's enough time set aside, both on the front end and the back end of the meetings, to have executive sessions amongst just the directors. 
because in that environment you are much more likely to get an open dialogue with some of, of, of the questions. And normally that executive session is saved for the very end of a meeting, but I find it actually very helpful to start with an executive session and end with an executive session as a way to at least foreshadow some of the conversations and where some of the more difficult debate is likely to be, and then come around to it the next day at the end of the meeting where you can you can then bring closure. Suzanne, I've applied those same guidelines for really senior executive teams of large global companies. Exactly the same and for the same reason, because most of the decisions and the analysis are being brought in by people lower in the organization. The, the executive committee might not be close enough to the data and, and they operate in many ways like a board. And so you get the same dynamics. You get a, a, a more junior team who's closer to whatever the business or operational issue is, briefing them, asking for approval, and making the same mistakes, not separating the rubber stamp versus where we really need engagement and shaping and debate, often not bringing multiple options. So if somebody's going to come and want a decision before we make the decision, the, the people who are not on the executive committee, or in this case, the people who are not the independent directors, leave the room, and only the directors then have an honest conversation with each other. Aaron, I, I think you mentioned about getting in other voices, basically, for the decisions uh, than, than the ones you, you typically hear. What would be some practical examples of those? There's quite a few ways you could do that. A board could say, hey, for this merger or acquisition decision, we'd like to see, we'd like to actually see the red team, blue team type of debate happen. We don't just want to hear about it afterward. We'd like to see it. And again, you can, you can then excuse them and have executive session afterward. They don't have to be in the room when the decision's made, but you can bring their voices and perspectives into the room. Um, we'd like to appoint a devil's advocate. We'd like to get an external expert and maybe a panel of external experts, and we want them to have different points of view. You would get all the diverse points of view, have the debate, hash it out, and then excuse the folks who aren't decision makers from the room so the decision makers can, can come to an alignment. Suzanne, did, did you try uh, any of those in, in practice in your boards, like red team, blue team, or, um, or any, any examples of, let's say, truly great decision-making that you have uh, been part of or, or witnessed in some of your organizations? So in a couple of situations where we were evaluating whether or not we should make an acquisition, we did bring a broad set of perspectives individually in the room, not all together, and um, asked them uh, various points of view of what is investor reaction likely to be? What is customer reaction likely to be? What is competitor reaction likely to be? What's employee reaction likely to be? Um, and, 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 and challenge that across people with very different points of view. And I've, we found it very helpful to get more comfortable with a decision that initially we weren't all necessarily aligned on. Let's maybe... Um again, go a bit back to the decision-making under uncertainty. And I think, Aaron, you have done quite a bit of research on what you call high-consequence, low-likelihood uh, decisions. What are these types of decisions? Well, um, there, there's two flavors of this, right? One is the ones we think of as risky. 
right? It's, it's unlikely to happen, but if it does happen, it could be catastrophically bad. And these are often managed by a risk committee where a risk committee will do the work of looking closely at those potentially catastrophic but low likelihood events that could happen and the decisions that we make that could mitigate those or, or not. It's hard because a lot of them are, because they are low likelihood, we don't have a lot of experience with them and we, it may not have ever happened before. So there's a lot of scenario planning that has to happen, a lot of looking at trends, a lot of imagining what ifs. Um, the thing I think that we sometimes don't uh, spend enough time on and that boards don't engage on is the flip side. What are the low likelihood, high consequence, positive things? Like, we don't want to invest in this because it's very unlikely to pay off. Well, but, but if it did pay off, the payoff could be so big that you should invest. It's not a big investment. And yes, it may not be worth much, but the investment is so small. And th these are the kinds of things that I think boards, from a strategic perspective, should be involved in more than many of them are. Adam Swyden used the term black elephants because they're a cross between the black swan, which are highly unlikely, you know, you never could have predicted, and the elephant in the room, right? Where it's like there's been talk of it, like the global pandemic or like the 2008 financial crisis. It was low probability, but there was lots of discussion about it. It wasn't like that it came out of nowhere. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of those, and I think really good boards, especially when they have a, a constructive relationship with the management team, they've created a psycho psychologically safe space, and there's real trust and support. A management team can bring to the board mistakes they've made, things they've missed, things they've learned. And if the board creates the outright environment of trust and transparency, the management team will bring that and help the board learn. And the board can then be more proactive in shaping the direction of the company, both to minimize these uh, downside, low likelihood, but potentially catastrophic risks, but also the positive black elephants, as Lee said, of, of these black swan events that could, could help us in a positive way. A good example of that, Aaron, is boards recognizing when they should be doing uh, post-completion reviews after major capital projects and recognize that the reason they're doing that is not to be able to poke management in the eye about things that went wrong on the project, but instead to ensure that management teams are learning from mistakes and that those things won't happen again. And boards recognizing that things will go wrong, there'll be unexpected things happening in the course of, of a project. And the only reason why you want to do these kinds of post-completion post reviews is to make sure the management team's getting those lessons learned and applying them. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's funny because we all had pandemics on our risk registers, right? And the question is, how many companies and boards had thought about, so what are the implications for supply chain disruption? What are the implications for border closures and having employees stuck in various places? What are the, you know, what, how quickly can we rework budgets? There just were so many things that, you know, the, the question is how deeply had anyone thought about all of the second and third order implications of these things? And what's so hard about that, Suzanne, is that there are so many of these potential low likelihood, high consequence, the predictable surprises, the black elephants. How does a board prioritize which ones to pay attention to? 
both on the downside and on the upside. And I think, you know, if, if we think about this, maybe on a, a little bit on a two by two of like how um, what, what's the scope of potential impact? Is it really, really big or is it low? And on one axis and then on the other, if we think about it as what's the level of certainty that that impact will happen? the degree of certainty will affect where boards need to get involved, right? Because if it's a lower certainty and not going to be as as potentially uh, existential for the company, then you can have management deal with more of those. But the, the, the really high consequence ones um, that are likely to have an existential impact on the company, positive or negative, if they happen, need board attention. But I'll, I'll give you an example of, of this, Lee, that, that I think highlights what you're saying. Um, you know, some boards might have just happened to have covered pandemic strategy, you know, in 2019. Although I would say maybe they got lucky because you never know when, when it's going to hit. And there were some boards who really didn't meaningfully engage on pandemic strategy until March or April. But there were some boards that saw the news happening in January and jumped on it then. So it wasn't like we just happened to guess that pandemic was coming. It was like, oh, there's news. So now we know that this could be potentially catastrophic. So the very low likelihood is a little less unlikely. And some of those boards went and said, what, what, where would we learn? Oh, you know what? There are some mining companies that had a bunch of mines in Africa when they've had some pandemic outbreaks, like Ebola, what could we learn from them? And they brought in people who helped deal with Ebola in Africa and said, oh, that, that's, that's interesting what you guys did and what you learned and how you wish you would have prepared. And they started, prepare, they started shaping the preparation with the management team in January. Most boards didn't, but some did. And that is a learning that I think can be applied broadly. Suzanne, when was the first board meeting where you meaningfully engage with the management team on pandemic response? February. Early February. Early February is still sooner than most boards did. So what, in that situation, what prompted you to engage that early? I I think we engaged in two different boards in early February. Um, Interestingly, one board actually had been through the experience of Ebola in mining and so recognized the signposts. And another one was, uh, you know, a global company who had people, a lot of people in China and in other parts of the world. And so we're beginning to see signals. Where the management team knew that this was a really big risk and that there were things that were going to happen and they needed to get it on top of things. And so started talking, you know, to the board about some of the things that they were thinking about and some of their preparation strategies. What a great relationship, though, to have with the board, where the management team values the board's engagement that early. Because, and again, this is anecdotal, but most of the boards that I'm aware of that had, they had that conversation, the same one Suzanne's talking about. They had it a month later. There's a lot you can do in a month. Suzanne, to what extent were they looking for guidance and advice and asking questions versus just briefing the board? I think it was more briefing the board and talking about the things that they were working on to make sure that the risks were being covered and asking the board if they had any additional thoughts 
that they might have missed in terms of what are the possible implications of this if this hits. So they were really opening the kimono and saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Here's what we would do if this happens, here's what we would do if that happens, and here are the, you know, here are the, the, the remaining uncertainties. Maybe one question from uh, from Isusana. When you mentioned again that you had, I mean, once we were into the pandemic and you started having weekly board meetings, uh, obviously then the preparation, you cannot have the classical uh, board meeting preparation process where, you know, you get the readings a week in advance or maybe even two, et cetera, et cetera. Right? How did you manage an, uh, getting an effective basis for decisions? Many of those were just updates and not decision um, discussions. And so it was really an opportunity for the management team to update the board on what was happening, you know, on the ground level. Early on in the pandemic, when we were doing those updates, there really wasn't that much written material necessarily around and it didn't warrant any specific decisions. It was just making sure that the board was kept up to speed on, on, on what was happening. But what you described, Suzanne, strikes me as inviting the board to help shape. And the way the board shaped was by asking questions. And in a, in a, in, in a period of great turbulence and uncertainty, that is probably the best way the board can help shape better decisions and actions that are going to have to be taken on the fly as new information emerges, is to prepare the management team by asking different questions and posing different scenarios. And only later, when more information is available, will management come back and in some cases update and in other cases uh, propose a decision to be made or, or a, a set of options to be considered. I think that's absolutely right, Adam. And, um, and through the pandemic, it's most of the decisions that management was making about what they had to do weren't really board level decisions. Um, and so only the only board level decisions in that were pandemic related were serious financial ones around, you know, the need to perhaps go out and secure some additional um, debt so that there would be a cash cushion. Thanks. Uh, those are great questions, Aaron, and also thanks, uh, Susan. Maybe uh, as we start wrapping up, uh, looking a bit towards the future. I mean, now we've had uh, really, uh, let's say, sp specific challenge over the last eight nine months. On this, at the same time, um, this uh, has also changed the, let's say, the frequency and the dynamic of uh, board management, at least in some companies. Um, yeah. Susanne, how, how do you see this uh, evolving going forward as we're coming hopefully out of the pandemic at some point? You know, historically, boards meet, you know, six times a year. They meet in person. Um, I do think we're going to see an increased frequency of communication. I think we're going to see um, a hybrid model of some meetings via video conference and some meetings in person. And so I do think each board is going to think through what's the right, both frequency of interaction as well as mode of interaction, whether it's in person or, or virtual. I'll tell you, I see a degradation in the quality of the discussion on a virtual format. And while it's been fine for this period of time, I think it's, um, I think it's impossible to onboard new board members effectively, build trust with management teams. And so I think the frequency of interactions has got to be 
at least four times a year, if not six times a year. But, but I do think more frequent virtual discussions that are shorter might be, might be effective ways to communicate and update. It's not sustainable at this pace, and it's actually creating more work for management, which isn't helpful. So it will recede, but it will be probably more frequent than pre-pandemic. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you also to Fritschoff, Lee, and Aaron for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. To keep up to date with each new episode of Inside the Strategy Room, please subscribe to our podcast in your favorite podcast player. For a transcript of today's conversation, we encourage you to visit our Inside the Strategy Room page on McKinsey.com, where you may also easily explore, filter, and search our library of previous podcasts, including board-related episodes covering cybersecurity and sustainability. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com. Follow us on Twitter at MCK strategy or connect with us on the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room.